0: Welcome to the Panic Attack Recovery Podcast, an ongoing source of practical strategies and tips for anxiety and ADHD. We're a collaboration of former sufferers helping those currently struggling with anxiety, panic attacks, and ADHD so they can express their true competencies in life. Now, here is Matthew, your host.
1: Hi, it's Matthew, and welcome to another podcast. Today, I want to discuss anxiety, stress, and its interaction with our physiology. I will be using a number of sources in this podcast, which you can always obtain from our website. Sometimes we might be hypervigilant about what is happening in our bodies, especially during the fight or flight process, which for those with anxiety and anyone who knows about stress, you are quite likely familiar with the fight or flight process. I won't get into this process in detail since I know it's something you are likely familiar with. However, I will say, You can learn more from our podcast about fight or flight, and there are many articles on our website that cover the topic. But what I really want to talk about today is the relationship between anxiety, stress, and physiology, as I said, but in a sense, this relationship when it goes beyond the typical discussion of the fight or flight response, at least how you think of the fight or flight response in typical scenarios. I don't mean anything far out there, wacky or weird. I'm just referring to your anxiety having a physical expression. For instance, you might be someone who is hypervigilant about your physiology, so you might notice that your heart might be seeming to go faster sometimes. Sometimes people are very concerned about their pulse rate, for example. If this is the case, physical sensations can also trigger anxious thoughts, so you start to notice your pulse maybe racing or going more quickly, and then your anxiety makes the physiological reactions stronger. So your pulse will quicken even further. And something we've talked about before is our sympathetic nervous system gets revved up. The sympathetic nervous system, as a reminder, is responsible for fight or flight. One of the things quite amazing is how anxiety can have a very powerful role in creating physical symptoms. We discussed in an article and video we presented on the physical symptoms of anxiety, which you can always get hold of from our website as well. In this article and video, we noted comments made by a physician who stated, In fact, doctors can't find physical causes for pain suffered by one out of every six people who come to the emergency department, including three out of four patients who have chest pain and nine out of every ten patients who have abdominal pain. It's becoming more and more clear that a lot of these problems are based in emotional distress. End quote. Interesting. And obviously a very powerful quote when you think about what this is saying about how powerful anxiety and stress can have in terms of an effect on your physical symptoms, on your physiology. When someone says it's all in your head, really, that's not the case because there isn't really this separation between physical and your brain. For instance, there are specific ways that anxiety and stress can interact with your body. Let's start with cardiovascular health. Well, stress can make blood pressure increase and blood vessels should dilate to allow more blood flow when it's needed when you're stressed. But if you are someone with poor cardiovascular health and damaged blood vessels, the vessels no longer dilate as they should, but rather they constrict. When you are stressed out, you pump more blood, but with constricted blood vessels, this can be a very bad combination. Now let's look at the interaction with your immune system. Stress has also been found to suppress the immune system and make one more susceptible to things like flus and colds. Also, if you look at the digestive system, stress hormones release and make you hungrier when you are stressed. Of course, you've heard of binge eating and emotional eating. Well, there's a physiological basis for this, and obviously a psychological basis for it. Emotions through stress hormones can even regulate your bowel. They can cause more abdominal fat in the long run and lead to irritable bowel syndrome. Which is something called functional disorder. As well, if you are just on the edge of having diabetes, or you have diabetes already, stress can push you into this condition further. When you enter the stress response, you secrete glucocorticoids, glucogen, and epinephrine, and you shut down insulin secretion and raise blood sugar levels. Another topic is chronic pain, or just pain in general. Stress can make you more sensitive to pain something called hyperalgesia. We sometimes wonder about a link between food, for example, food triggers. Have you ever thought about whether certain foods or food additives or flavorings affect you? This is certainly a topic that's open to some debate, but what's interesting is doing a really thorough search through PubMed and looking at the research studies, and I'll cite one in in particular in a second, which actually did a meta-analysis. What's interesting is that Even the most conservative people who look at ADHD and look at other psychological conditions such as anxiety and stress do admit that there does appear to be a small correlation in some cases between food and food additives in the diet and some conditions such as ADHD and anxiety. Now, some people will tell you you don't need to worry about that. It's such a small effect. It doesn't matter. And other people will actually say other professionals. I'm I'm speaking about professionals here. Will say you really do have to pay attention to what you're eating, what you're taking in because that can have a dramatic effect on your psychological symptoms. And there are even people out there, professionals out there, who state that foods, certain foods and food additives can actually cause conditions. So I'm not saying who's right or wrong here. I'm just telling you what the variety of opinion is. But at a very basic level, to me, it makes sense to consider, are there some foods or food additives that may be at least worsening your symptoms? As I mentioned, I wanted to discuss a a study. And this looked at restriction and elimination diets in ADHD treatment. It was published by Joel Nigg and Kathleen Holton in the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Clinics of North America. They found the following. Food elimination diets come in different forms. The most restrictive or few foods diet eliminates a wide range of foods for temporary period, adding foods back in one by one in an attempt to identify symptomatic triggers. Use of elimination diets to treat attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder has been proposed and studied for nearly 40 years and frequently reviewed and discussed. A consensus has emerged among most reviewers that an elimination diet produces a small aggregate effect but may have a greater benefit among some children. It does not appear to work or be a factor for everyone with the disorder. So my take on this is I think you should consider becoming mindful and trying to eliminate certain foods or additives from your diet for a while and then trying to reintroduce them to see if you find a difference. But it sounds like an elimination diet may be something to consider at no cost. It's just simply eliminating some foods and then slowly reintroducing them, maybe keeping a food journal to see what foods are associated with certain symptoms. But I would simply suggest it's something to consider And the point really in today's podcast is to discuss the interaction between psychological symptoms and our physiology, our biology, and vice versa. It goes both ways. So in this case, we may have food or food additives worsening our symptoms. But in other cases, we may have psychological symptoms that cause physical expressions. And not only physical expressions, but can lead to worsening of chronic diseases. So after all this unpleasant talk about conditions, what can you do about it? Ultimately, everyone, I think, needs to have a tool to routinely manage the stress in their life. This is really key. Now, there are a number of techniques on stress management that we have discussed in our podcast. There are a variety of treatments, strategies, and tips that one can consider for sure. But there is one area that we at PanicAttackRecovery.com consider very important to include. Breathing exercises and proper breathing. I really like what Dr. Andrew Wilde has to say about breathing exercises. He explains that the theory is that by over time imposing proper breathing rhythms with the breath on your voluntary nervous system, you are gradually imposing them on the involuntary nervous system. Now, the interesting thing about the breathing exercise is that it's a very simple activity to do, and you only have to do it a couple of days to be able to benefit from it. The exercise, if you'd like to try it, goes something like this. You breathe in for four seconds through your nose, hold for a count of seven, and then breathe out through your mouth for a count of eight. So I'll sort of simulate it here. Breathe in through your nose, hold for a count of seven, and breathe out for a count of eight. What Dr. Weil discusses is that you can actually just do two breath cycles at a time. Do it twice, in other words. Then over a month, if you are comfortable, you can move up to four cycles. Now, what he recommends is doing it twice a day. So you can literally start out today in the morning, if you like, doing two breath cycles. And then in the evening, before you go to bed, you can do two more. Dr. Weil suggests these exercises are a great way to fall asleep or when something else upsets you like for example, you get cut off in traffic or a person frustrates you. By learning to integrate breathing into your activities, you can always have a default position to take a breath. And this can help you to slow down before you react in the normal way through the fight or flight response. Now what's key here is, as Dr. Weil says, most people and some professionals can be very dismissive of breathing exercises because they seem too simple. How could something that simple work? But it's really not just doing them intensely for a day or two. It's the regularity of doing these exercises over time, and it's really not the intensity you do it for in one day. For more information, I would encourage you to do an internet search on Dr. Weil teaching breathing exercises. I think you'll find his videos, as there are several, to be very informative, but also you'll see how easy it is to do this technique. And it's literally something that you can build into your routine and do it every day. Another area I want to discuss is just proper breathing in general. In the past, we produced a podcast that discussed proper breathing in general. And this is, as I said, separate from doing breathing exercises. Proper breathing, and I would encourage you to give that a listen. You see, many anxiety sufferers over the years have become accustomed to breathing in a very shallow manner. But this can easily be addressed. The key for proper breathing is to concentrate on bringing air into your lower part of your diaphragm and to really sort of expand your stomach when you breathe in, rather than breathing shallow through your chest. And this is something you can do throughout the day, every time you're conscious of it, to breathe more deeply and to breathe more regularly and to breathe in so that you're taking air and expanding into your diaphragm and not breathing in a shallow manner. Breathing is something that can give you that sense of control and often for anxiety and panic attack sufferers or people who are really stressed out, is it's the fear or the feeling of losing control that's the strongest. So by integrating breathing exercises into your life and by learning proper breathing, it can give you back a sense of control. And by focusing on your breathing, you're doing an exercise that's helpful for your mental health.
0: Thank you for listening to the Panic Attack Recovery Podcast. Make sure that you have subscribed to our podcast and please comment and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All show notes and links are accessible from our website. Please visit our site and subscribe to our free newsletter at panicattackrecovery.com. All information has been provided for educational purposes. Please consult a healthcare professional about any disorder or condition and the applicability of any information provided in this podcast.